Well, good morning. Great to see you. Hi, Danny. Thanks for saying hi. Uh, for those of you online, great to have you with us as well. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm, I'm part of our preaching team. And as we get started, you might just notice something that you don't normally see in the passage. If you have your Bible, you can look at it right before where uh, Mark just started reading. You see in brackets there, it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. I just want to mention kind of what's going on there briefly. Uh, we have the Bible because we have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of uh, manuscripts that were written by eyewitnesses or uh, companions of eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses of Jesus. But what we have in this particular story is a portion that the earliest manuscripts we have doesn't include. Uh, the oral tradition uh, says that this story probably happened pretty early, but it didn't get written down for some time. A lot of people think, based on the language of it, that it was written maybe by Luke instead of by John. Uh, some manuscripts actually include this story in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, all that to say, some of you are like, what? <laughs> What's happening? Uh, this story almost certainly was not written by John in the original copy of the Gospel of John. And yet, every scholar, and, and all the scholars say, yes, this wasn't in the earliest copy, but almost every scholar also says, but this almost certainly happened. It sounds like Jesus, it feels like Jesus, there's an early kind of tradition, oral tradition of it being uh, passed down before it was written down, and at some point it, it got included into the biblical uh, text, but I, th I just appreciate the honesty of the people who uh, compile this. They say, hey, just so you know, this wasn't in the earliest copies. Now, if that raises questions for you and you go, man, I want to know more about that, um, I'm not going to give you more about that today. I'm sorry. I thought about doing it, but then I went, that will take the whole sermon and it will actually be more like a lecture. And it's very interesting and I think actually very important because we can trust our Bible, uh, but I don't want to take the time to deal with that right now, especially because I want to give you a save the date for an event that's coming up here in a couple months uh, called the Scribes and Scripture Conference. Uh, there are some truly world-class scholars uh, at Phoenix Seminary who specialize in how we got the Bible, looking at the Hebrew Scriptures, looking at the Greek New Testament, how those manuscripts came to be, and why we can trust them. And so we're going to host those folks in April. We'd love for you to join us. It's on a Saturday, and there'll be lots of time to go through that, uh, lots of time to ask and answer questions uh, that explore that. And this is really important, especially for those of you um, who maybe come from an LDS background or have friends who do, uh, or maybe you come from a more kind of uh, secular and skeptical perspective. In either case, uh, you might have people getting you to kind of try to doubt the Bible. Can we really trust the Bible? Was it really put together or was it just a translation of a translation of a translation? Uh, we believe that the scriptures are trustworthy um, and that uh, conference is going to go into that a bit more. Um, but this story, it, it does sound and it does feel a lot like Jesus, which is why so many scholars feel comfortable and why I think it's important that we actually look at it. And what it shows us is what might happen if you encountered Jesus in one of your worst moments. I can think of a bad moment for me. I was, a number of years ago, uh, somebody had gifted Molly and I uh, this thing. I don't know if these things are around anymore, but one of these things where you would go to a place and prepare a meal or a bunch of meals that then you would take home and you'd put in your freezer and you'd kind of have these pre-made meals sort of ready to just heat up and that sort of a stuff. And so I remember going to one of these things with Molly and we're there and there's a few other people kind of in our class and all the ingredients are kind of set up, but you're, you know, you're cutting some vegetables and you're seasoning some meat and you're doing different things. You're preparing these 
these meals that you're going to take home. And so we're there at kind of the beginning of the hour-long session that it is, and I'm thinking, well, this is going to be kind of fun. It'd be cool. Maybe we should get to know some of the people around us. And so I see this woman in the station next to us, and so Molly and I are doing our thing, and I, and I turn to her and I ask what seemed to me a, a very reasonable question, which was, when is your baby due? To which she replied, about seven months ago. And I said, congratulations, chop, 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 chop. I mean, not a good moment, right? I, I learned a lesson that I will, not, I will not even venture that, right? I can see someone who's pregnant with octuplets and their belly is humongous, and I will still not ask that question because I learned my lesson. But that was a very embarrassing moment. And it was embarrassing to have to be with her then for the next hour. <laughs> Are there other ways that I could misjudge you, uh, right? And it was just, it was very awkward, very uncomfortable. And yet the reality is like now I can tell that story and we can all kind of laugh about it, right? And so there's a lot of our kind of bad moments that we could tell the story, we could have a good laugh. We go, oh yeah, I remember what an idiot I was. But, but what, if, what if you think about some of the moments that are bad moments, they're embarrassing moments, but they're not, they're not funny. They're actually dark and ugly and embarrassing, not because they're funny, but because they're really not funny. Because of what you said that was very hurtful, what you did that was very cruel. See, there are some moments that we could think, oh, that's funny, I can laugh at that. There's other moments we don't want to think about them, let alone laugh about them. What if that was the moment that was on full display around everyone important in your life and in front of Jesus himself? See, that's the setting we find ourselves in this story here. If you have your Bible, you can look at it again with me. Jesus is there. He's teaching in the temple. Uh, he's sitting down and he's teaching. And it says in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said. Now, just to understand this, she was caught in the act of adultery. This does not mean she was suspected of being in an adulterous affair. This wasn't even like she uh, you know, was walking out of someone else's house. This was like caught in the act of adultery. That's what the text means. And they put her in the midst. There Jesus is. He's teaching. Jesus is popular. Jesus has crowds around him all the time. Jesus has especially a lot of really interested religious people around him all the time. And the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman caught in the worst moment perhaps of her life and put her in the midst, in the middle, all eyes on her. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Stoning was where you would put someone to death by throwing and hurling large stones at them until they died. The law commanded us to stone such women, they say. What do you say? Now, it's interesting because they only kind of half are accurate about what the law says. Already, they've very selectively 
used the law the way they want to. But if you know anything about adultery, it takes two people. And they only have her. Look at what it says, actually, in Leviticus 20. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, same thing. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. So this was not just that the woman should be convicted and therefore killed, put to death, but that both are, and they've left him out of the equation. It's because they're not really concerned about righteousness. They're not really concerned about upholding the law. They're not really concerned about doing the best thing. They're interested, it says in verse 6, in testing him. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. This is a whole concocted situation. In fact, most scholars uh, suggest that they probably had to kind of trap this woman. Maybe even one of the scribes or the Pharisees uh, who's bringing the charge was in on the ruse. And they bring this woman, and it's all just to test Jesus, to trap Jesus. Because think about the position it puts Jesus in. Jesus, here's what the law of Moses says. What should we do? Jesus has a tough choice. If he says, well, the law of Moses said that, but you know what? Don't worry about it. Don't, don't, don't do this. It's like, ha-ha, you're a false teacher. You say you're all about the law of Moses. You say you're from God, but you're just disregarding the Scripture. So that's a bad option. The other option is Jesus could say, all right, let's kill her. And now he's got a couple problems because on, on one of them is they're going to go, well, what about Mr. Meek and Mild Jesus? What about Mr. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I thought you were Mr. Compassion. That's one problem. The other problem is the Jews didn't actually have authority to enact capital punishment. The Romans had to do that. That's why Jesus ended up being crucified by Romans. So it's a trap. It's not authentic. It's not a real curiosity. It's a trap. And so Jesus bent down, it says. You'll notice in this text as we read it, there's a lot of bending down and standing up and bending down and standing up. He bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. He'll do this again in verse 8. This is an interesting move. He's not answering the question. They ask the question and he bends down and he starts to write, on the ground. Now, do you want to know what Jesus was writing? I do too. <laughs> I have no idea. No one knows, right? There's lots of theories. There's lots of people that suggest stuff, but no one knows. No one knows the answer. Maybe he was writing out some scripture. Uh, maybe he was writing out a list of all their sins. Uh, maybe he was uh, drawing a Jesus fish, <laughs> eating a Darwin fish, or I don't know, like... Uh, but but we, don't, we don't know. It's interesting. Actually, one of our pastors from Redemption Tucson grew up in West Africa. And he said in, in their tribal culture, it was very common that if you got into a dispute with someone, you might at some point bend down and write in the dirt. And a lot of times it was kind of the idea of drawing a line in the sand. I've had no, I can't take any more. Maybe that. We don't know. Jesus bends down. He's not answering their question, but they keep talking to him. Do you see it in verse 7? And as they continued to ask him, so they're pestering him, they're badgering him, they're heckling him, he stood up. The crowd gets quiet. And he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What a wily way to answer that question. 
Yeah, she deserves to die. So any of you who are sinless, and because of your sinless, don't also therefore deserve to die, go ahead and throw the first stone. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. So again, he gives them space to process this. In verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one. Then I love this detail, beginning with the older ones. Why is that? Beginning with the older ones, they walked away one by one. I don't know exactly, but my, my best guess is that the longer I've lived, the more aware I am of my imperfections. Isn't it interesting, some of you who've walked with Jesus for a long time, that you can actually truly become more godly and more holy and more righteous and more aware of your sin at the same time. And so one by one, they walk away. And Jesus is still down on the ground, and he hears them go off, and it almost, it's described almost like a procession. Away they go. Verse 10, Jesus stood up. He said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She'd gone from being the center of everyone's attention to just the center of Jesus' attention. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. This is a remarkable story. There's a reason that a lot of us know and love this story. It's, it's precious. What does this story reveal to us? Well, three important truths. The first one is this story reveals to us the true guilt of sin. See, we imagine that sin is what those people do. We all kind of imagine ourselves to be mild to medium sinners. None of us really think of ourselves as extra spicy sinners. That's what those people are out there. We're mild to medium. But the scripture says that we're all guilty that we all deserve God's wrath, that we all deserve God's punishment, that we all deserve to be cut off from the presence of the Lord when we commit any sin. Now, adultery was, in fact, a significant sin. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And the reason it's significant is because the relationship between God and his people was to be like a marriage. God's the faithful groom, and his people are the faithful bride. When we sin, when we rebel against God, the Scripture compares it to spiritual adultery. Adultery is this physical act representing the breaking of a bond, just like the breaking of our bond with God. And so it is serious. And you might say, okay, well, I get it. Adultery is serious, but capital punishment? Because this isn't just the scribes and the Pharisees making this up. This is, I just quoted from it, Leviticus and Deuteronomy said, these are acts that deserve death. Doesn't that seem a lot much? And the truth is that all sin ultimately leads to death. What that pictures, what that shows us, is the seriousness of sin. And our tendency to go, well, I know adultery is bad, but is it that bad? Is actually how we handle all sin. I know it's bad. It's really bad when they do it. Right? We judge others by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. And we go, ah, uh, is it that bad? And yet the scripture over and over and over says that when we rebel against God, when we turn our back on him, when we say, I know what's best for me, that we deserve death. 
Here's some examples. Genesis 2.17, this was God's warning to Adam and Eve of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And it is only the grace of God that he did not wipe Adam and Eve out in that moment. But they did die in their hearts. Their spiritual lives with God was broken. Their relational lives with one another was broken. They started blaming. Their internal lives with themselves was broken. Before they were naked and unashamed in the presence of God, and now they're hiding and covering up and blaming other people. And they pass that down to us, and all of us die because all of us sin. Every single one of us will die. And it's not to say that you'll necessarily die because of one sin you committed, but all of us will die because of the sin we've all committed. This is why we need salvation. This is why we need a hope, because otherwise the hope is no hope. There's just death. And some will say, but gosh, that's not fair. I mean, the idea that we should experience God's wrath, that we should experience justice, that we should experience hell or damnation, that doesn't feel fair. Like, I get it for Hitler, and I get it for Stalin, and I get it for ISIS, but you're telling me that I can just be kind of like an, just an average person and never trust in Jesus, and that when I die, I'm going to go to hell? And, and what I'm telling you is, I'm not telling you that. God is. And you go, well, that's not fair. Well, are you sure you want what's fair? Because we all want grace and mercy, but, but fair is what we deserve, and we've just read what's fair. And you go, well, how can that be fair, that you can commit small acts that have such eternal consequences? Well, think about this for a moment. We're judged not just on the basis of what we do, but on who we do it against, right? So, so think about this uh, for a moment. Uh, I'll look around. John Lenander is down here, and he's a pretty tough guy, ex-military guy. And if I come down off after the stage, and I feel like, you know what, John looked at me funny during that message. I didn't really appreciate that. And I come down, and I cold cock him right in the face. Um, he's probably going to get me, right? He's probably going to beat me up. He's part of the security team, and he'll say, swarm, 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 and, I, and they'll be on me. And, uh, but, you know, he, maybe he'd press charges, probably wouldn't, I hope. I'm not planning anything, John. <laughs> but, but, but you go, okay, I punch someone. Like, worst case, he beats me up back, or maybe there's an incident report filed. <laughs> well, there's a number of times here where we'll have uh, police who are here directing traffic or doing security on different things. If I come down off the stage and punch an in-uniform police officer there's going to be more than an incident report filed, right? Now imagine that there's a celebrity that comes to attend church here, and I come down off the stage and I punch them. Right now I'm going to be in the newspaper. I'm probably going to have some sort of... Right now imagine that the President of the United States or another head of state is here and I punch them. I'm going to jail, right? It's the same act done to more important people requires more significant punishment. 
So we sin in small ways against a holy, perfect, righteous God who created us and upholds us by the word of his power. Even small sins against him deserve eternal punishment. And what this story shows us is the true guilt of sin. See, they came bringing this woman thinking she's guilty, and Jesus goes, Ho, do you want to start playing the who deserves to die game? Because if we start that game, there's only one person going to be left standing, and it's me. If you want to start killing sinners, watch out, right? This is mutually assured destruction, We're just going to all throw stones until everyone who deserves to die is dead, and it's everyone but Jesus. See, the true guilt of sin is that we all deserve to die. We We think we deserve leniency. We think we deserve mercy. It's not mercy if you deserve it. It's mercy when you deserve justice, and instead you get mercy. That's the true guilt of sin. This passage also shows us the true perfection of Jesus. Jesus is staggering here. We were told in John 1.14 that he was full of grace and truth, that he is the word of God made flesh, that he is God incarnate. And he's the one who made water into wine at a wedding just to make the party better. And there's just a few moments later, he cord, white, or sews together a whip of cords so that he can turn over the tables. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. At our best moments, we're one or the other. Jesus is both at the same time. Notice here, he says, I don't condemn you, but sin no more. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay, do whatever you want. You know, girls will be girls, guys will be guys. Nobody's perfect. That's not what he says. He says, I don't condemn you, but stop it. You're you're hurting yourself. When God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. Don't ruin yourself. Don't hurt other people. Jesus is gracious, but he's also truthful. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He says, Jesus Christ combines compassion and justice so perfectly that the world has never seen its like. He is the most absolutely unsurpassed, integrated personality, balanced, wise human being we've ever seen. This is so good. He says, he is not just a kind of compromise halfway between strong and tender, but rather he is just and righteous to the nth degree and he is compassionate and melt in your mouth gentle to the nth degree. These two traits don't fight in him, they unite in him. There's no one like this man. There's no one with his wisdom. There's no one with his toughness. There's no one with his tenderness. There's no one with his holiness and there's no one with his compassion. This is God made flesh. And this, friends, li- listen, this is what God is like. When we, if you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. It's not like God is one way and Jesus is another way. No, Jesus is revealing God. Here's who God is. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and will by no means clear the guilty. That's how he's revealed in the Old Testament. That's how he's revealed in the flesh in Jesus. Finally, this passage reveals to us the true order of the gospel. The true order of the gospel. We find it in verse 11. I love this. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Listen, friends, that's the order of the gospel. We trust in Christ, and he says, 
I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. So many of us naturally and through the environments we're raised in flip that order. We think the order is go and sin no more and then you'll have no condemnation. Maybe it comes from a parent who was exacting and unrealistic and whose love was conditional. And you grew up with an an inherent sense that if I do the right things, then I'll be loved. And you've imported that onto your view of God. Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition that said, if you give enough and you serve enough and you show up enough and you avoid enough of the wrong things, if you do those things, then God will accept you. That is not the order of the Christian gospel. The order of the Christian gospel is that you are gloriously set free and forgiven and experience mercy and grace and pardon and acceptance, that you are welcomed by the arms of the Father before you get cleaned up. But he loves you so much that he won't let you stay there and he'll say, go and sin no more. Follow me, obey me, serve me, love me, live a life of generosity and of faith and obedience for me because that's the best way to live. But that's the order. Friends, don't confuse this. Many of you have have been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you are submitting again to a yoke of slavery that says, I have to earn it. I have to pay it back. I have to prove to God or myself or my parents or someone that I am worthy of this. Friends, you're not worthy. But he is. And that's what makes all this possible. Because listen, for Jesus to be truly righteous, he can't just let the sin go unpunished. So how does he pull this off? Well, the chapter begins telling us about a woman who was going to be stoned. And that chapter ends in verse 59 saying, so they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. How does he pull this off? Because the only one who didn't deserve to die for his sins is the one who will voluntarily die for their sins. That's the gospel. That's the message. Jesus doesn't die by stoning. He dies in a way much worse, by being crucified, by being hung there for sins he did not commit. And Jesus sets us free because he takes our punishment, the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. Jesus takes that for us on the cross, and he says, in light of that, I don't condemn you, but now go and sin no more. Come follow me. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. This is why we have hope. If we didn't have this, all of us are standing at a future of standing before God and saying, oh no. But because of what Christ has done, we will stand before God. And those of us who've trusted in what Jesus has done on our behalf will have the great privilege of saying to the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will. And he does. And he offers that grace even now. Will you receive him? Will you trust him? Will you come before the Lord of glory in all your worst 
fully seen for everything you've done and receive his pardon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Christ. Thank you for this good news. Thank you for how you let us go free because of how you take our judgment. We come to you now and we ask you to help us to sin no more. Not to earn your favor, but because we already have it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.